Welcome to Imagining Worlds Part 1. This is Episode 16 of Writers' Festival Radio. We are broadcasting from the unceded and unsurrendered territory of the Algonquin Anishinaabe. My name is Sean Wilson. I'm the Artistic Director of the Ottawa International Writers' Festival, and it gives me great pleasure to welcome you to the podcast. I want to thank you in advance for supporting authors and booksellers through these difficult times. Our official bookseller is Perfect Books on Elgin Street, and wherever you are right now, there is an independent bookseller nearby who would be more than happy to sell you a copy of these books. In this episode, we'll hear from David A. Robertson and Derek Kunskin, two remarkable authors whose new books bring fully rendered characters and their readers into beautifully imagined worlds. David Alexander Robertson may be living under lockdown like the rest of us, but he's still having quite a year. Not only did his podcast, Kiweo, launch on CBC, he's also got three new books, a memoir, Blackwater, Family, Legacy, and Blood Memory. Then there's Breakdown, the latest Reckoner graphic novel with artist Scott B. Henderson. And the book we'll be talking about today, The Barren Grounds, book one of the Missawasega, which has been described as Narnia meets traditional indigenous stories of the sky and constellations in an epic middle grade fantasy. Here's a little taste of The Barren Grounds, followed by our conversation. Blizzard in the drawing, once just pencil lines, stormed into the attic room. The kids stumbled backwards against the wall. Morgan tried to move to the side, out of the way of the wind, but there was no escaping it. And this time, it was unrelenting. It wasn't just wind, either. Snow was pouring into the room, so fast and hard that it stung against Morgan's skin. She raised her arm in front of her face to shield it from the onslaught. Eli did the same. Within seconds, the floor was covered in white flakes. Morgan peeked over her arm to look at the paper fastened to the wall. It had been a drawing, but not anymore. Now, it was a window. But the window didn't open to the world outside the house. It opened to the world that Eli had created. The world that Morgan had pictured that morning. She could see the blizzard, both in the attic and in the picture. She could see the near, endless field of snow. She could see, just barely, the tree line far in the distance. She could see shimmering lights, like tiny stars, from the village. She could see the fisher. The animal being was walking towards them, at first slowly. Then it broke into a run. Snow kicked up behind it. Morgan screamed. Eli rushed forward, ripped the paper away from the wood, and the other world was gone. Thank you so much for for talking with us today. This podcast is all about imagining worlds, and so I'm really excited to touch base with you about the barren grounds. And so maybe we can start with... um, where this story started for you. Yeah. Um, it's actually this like multifaceted um, <laughs> inspiration. So it came from like a lot of different places um, that kind of just like converged um, at the right time. And it was just, it felt like it was a time to tell the story. And um, 
you know, the, the, the uh, original concept came from a, an adult novel I wrote actually called The Evolution of Alice, uh, which was probably six, seven years ago. Um, and I had a story in there about this, uh, one of the main characters who moves to the city from the reserve and moves into this apartment where they, he sees all these tack, wall, tack marks in the walls. Um, and he finds over the course of the short story that there's a ghost uh, in the apartment. And, um, and then he eventually finds out that this ghost was of a foster um, sister's um, who had since passed on. And so I, I kind of love this concept of this um, foster sister. And I had a whole backstory for this too. I had another short story we cut from the book, but um, she was drawing pictures and tacking them on walls to escape from what she was going through. And um, I love the idea of that. Um, and so that's kind of where the concept of the book came from. And then a bunch of different things kind of like, you know, um, happened that, um, made this story happen. Uh, and one of them was, um, wanting to talk about the foster care system. I've, I wanted more and more to talk about the foster care system in my work, um, and how, you know, uh, some of the aspects of colonial Canada are still with us. Um, and how, you know, we're still taking kids from families and it's still affecting Indigenous kids. And, um, and I loved, uh, as well, portal stories. And so I saw, like, if I took this portal story, if I took this idea of this, you know, this girl looking at pictures to escape, I said, why couldn't she actually literally go through the pictures to escape? Um, and so I, I like that idea. And then I was reading a lot of, uh, you know, Indigenous uh, Cree legends of the sky and the stars, and, um, and so all of these kind of um, influences and inspirations and needs to tell different stories kind of came together to form what eventually would become the barren grounds. Um, and so it's, it's this like mesh, mashup of um, wanting to talk about real life issues, wanting to kind of reimagine um, classical literature through an indigenous lens, like in this case, the Chronicles of Narnia. Um, you know, wanting to talk about Cree legends um, and then and then just kind of like trying to weave that all into a, a really exciting narrative adventure story. Mm. Now, how much of, of uh, Ocek and, and how much of the world of ASCII is, is taken directly from uh, the oral tradition, the Cree oral tradition, and, and how much did you bring to the table in terms of inventing a, a kind of a new framework? Well, the, the bones were there. I mean, the, the Cree, you know, the Cree legend is is a little spare, um, but it's as much as it's spare, it's got this incredible adventure story. Um, but it doesn't go into much detail about the world in which these animals uh, are living. Um, it's just that they're living through this eternal winter, and then they go on this journey to find the summer birds. And the summer birds kind of fly around the world and they bring the seasons depending on where they are at in their, in their journey. Um, and I, I, love, I love the visuals of that. I love the kind of logic of it. Um, and from there, though, it just was like trying to build a world around that logic, around that concept of these summer birds and this eternal winter. And so, yeah, I, I mean, I made up Misawa. I made up all these animal characters and I, the, to me, the heart of this world is that they live traditionally. 
they live like Cree people used to live before contact. Um, they sustain themselves traditionally. They follow different ceremonies. They uh, all Cree values, Cree belief systems, uh, and Cree ways of living. And, um, and it was a way for me to talk about how um, we can reconnect with our cultures that we've lost. And so Morgan, who has gone through the foster care system for you know, most of her life, um, and has very disconnected from what it means to be Cree, uh, her Cree identity, upon, you know, traveling as far away as you could get from Earth, she finds herself reconnecting with those aspects of her indigeneity. And I love the idea of that by learning about how to live as a Cree person by seeing how these, you know, bipedal kind of animals live. Uh, and teaching her how to live again. And and um, and so I, I kind of constructed the world around all those kind of, um, yeah, these kind of like um, needs for the story and the characters and the adventure that they're going to go on. Now, we're re recording this conversation about a week after uh, Orange Shirt Day. And one of the one of the interesting things is that often colonial issues and, and issues of racism in this country are presented as if they are historic, <laughs> as if uh, this is something we can look back on when, um, you know, you just mentioned the foster care system and you've got these two wonderful characters, Morgan and Eli, who are both um, very contemporary and, and very much in, in the here and now, who have both been taken from their communities. Um, can you talk just a little bit about that, that idea of of needing to tell a story that is that is honest, um, but that also is is addressing the issue, um, but in such a hopeful way and in such a forward-looking way. I, I just found this so, um, on the one hand, heartbreaking, but also really inspiring that these two young people are, they're not, they're, they're, we really follow them through this book, reconnecting and and really opening up to who they are and, and, a, and a, a real modern way of, of connecting with that. Um, can we just talk a little bit about, about that reality? Yeah, I, I actually, I love that. Um, there is an immediacy to this story. Um, I wanted people like, so, um, you know, I, I learned a lot from my dad. And, and one of the things we talked a lot about was, um, discovery of self and discovery of who we are and understanding who we are and how, how do we get to that point where we can um, have a better sense of our identities. Um, and, and some of it is looking back. Some of it, a lot of it is looking back on what has come before us um, to understand where we are today and how all those histories, how all the uh, impacts of those histories has affected us as people as individuals, as families, as communities. Um, and, and that requires us to look at history and what's happened in this country. But there's also this recognition that um, the things that have happened in the past are still happening today. And, and that's something that I like to talk to kids about all across Canada is to talk about the fact that when we talk about, first of all, when we talk about history, we're not, we're not talking about Indigenous history. It's Canadian history. It's history that affects everybody. Um, and then we move on to this uh, reality that the stuff that we talk about in the past is still happening right now in this moment. There are more kids in foster care than ever were in, in, in residential schools. And, and the, the impacts of that experience can be as devastating 
as the impacts of the residential school system because we're still removing kids from their communities, their families, their languages, their cultures. And so I, I really want this to be a book that, that asks kids to look forward, to think about um, how learning about these things, how learning about the past and the present helps us to understand better where we need to go tomorrow. And that's really why I write so much for kids is because I recognize that in children, um, the, the, our future is in their hands. And our responsibility, whether you're you know, a podcaster, whether you're a teacher, whether you're a writer, is to provide kids the knowledge that they need to have in order to become better leaders and to make better decisions for us than our leaders today are making. And, um, and I take that you know, very seriously as much as this is a really fun book to read. There are some really important lessons in this book that I think help us to understand where we are at today and to help us look forward to where we need to go tomorrow to um, function better as a society and to respect each other and to be able to collectively heal over the uh, contemporary and historical traumas that we have been through in this country. Mm. Now, and I don't want to give away too much about the story, but when they travel over Morgan and Eli uh, and meet Ocek, um, they discover a world that is trapped in a kind of eternal winter. How how much of the conflict did you have planned out in terms of who the villain really is and what the villain is? And how much did you discover with Morgan and Eli as they as they traveled the Barren Lands? Yeah, I mean, the the, the actual like the antagonist and the and the, and the main reason why um, Aski, the North Country, had been thrust into this eternal winter was something that I had I had always. Uh, had planned for. And, you know, depending on the book I write, I either have a very detailed plot, a very detailed synopsis prepared, or I just fly by the seat of my pants. And for a book like this, um, because it's a trilogy and because it's, you know, um, kind of uh, plot dependent in a way, as much as there are really beautiful character um, moments and uh, character studies in this book, um, I, I really need to know where I was going and why. Um, and so I knew from the start that, yeah, again, not to give anything away, but I knew what was happening, why it was happening, and what the children and their companions, their animal companions needed to do in order to bring summer back. And when I talked about all these influences of this book, like, you know, the foster care system and portal stories and classical literature and all these things, the other thing that I wanted to talk about was the environmental impacts of colonialism and, you know, industrialism and all these things, because I know that they have had a profoundly negative impact on our environment. And I wanted, I wanted kids and adults, frankly, to think about land stewardship and environmental protection and what we are doing to the earth right now. And, um, and I think that this book allows us to have a very important conversation about those things. And, and so this isn't like a story where I'm trying to make anybody feel guilty or I'm trying to place the blame on anybody in particular, but I do want people to think about um, our greed and how we strip the land of, our, of these resources for profit um, and for our own interests and then what it's doing to our land and, and how it's not sustainable. And it's another kind of really nuanced discussion, but that, that's what I love about kids' literature is that you can have these really complex discussions with kids 
And the reality is, is that kids really get it. Like kids understand what you're saying. Um, they, um, they want to know these things. They want to read stories that mean something. And I think the Barren Grounds has a lot in it. And that's one of the things that it offers readers. It, it really allows us to frame a, a conversation and not that it's pedantic or, or dogmatic, but around um, so the structures, it's just the systemic issues that we live with and the ways that, that um, even the nicest people like the Foster family are really lovely people, um, but they're, they're in a system that's broken, right? That's, yeah, that's exactly it. It's, it's, and sometimes, and I had this conversation the other day, it's like, it's not necessarily talking about broken people or bad people. It's talk, like, because Katie and James are really well-intentioned and they, they really want the best for Morgan and Eli. They love these kids, um, but they're not equipped to be able to give them what they really need. And, and so it talks about, just like you said, like it talks about not broken people, but a broken system. And, and that's another conversation that we can have is like um, how the foster care system, how the education system, how the health system, because of the systemic barriers and systemic racism that Indigenous people face, um, the impact that these systems have on Indigenous people is profound. And, um, and, it, and it also um, leads to um, people within those systems making decisions that negatively impact Indigenous people as well. And so it's not necessarily laying the blame at the foot of any, any one person. It's saying that we need to fix these systems. And, and fixing these systems also requires like a full court press, everybody involved, and to demand change because we recognize that um, it's, it's doing really bad things to communities, to families, to kids. Um, and we can't, we can't uh, accept that as, as a country. Um, and hopefully, again, like this book helps raise a bit of awareness in those areas. As much as, you know, like a kid can read this and just have fun reading it and just enjoy the adventure. But if they really want to dig into it, there's a lot there to motivate them to create change. And that's kind of there in all the books that I write. Now, correct me if I'm wrong here, but I feel like in the last five or six years, you know, as a, as a settler um, reading Indigenous work, I feel that more and more, um, you know, what you've been doing, uh, Cherie, Wobb, uh, uh, Stephen Graham Jones, Eden Robinson, these books are being written directly for Indigenous communities and not for the white gaze. And certainly I, as a settler, can, I can read it and enjoy it and, and feel welcomed by it. I don't feel shunned by it, but I do feel, I do feel like this is not about me, which is, which is kind of a wonderful thing to, to see happening as a, as a broader movement. Yeah, I think that's fair. Um, you know, as much as I write my books for everybody, because I think there's 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 something in there for everybody. I do think that like one of the primary concerns that I have in my in my books, and I think that the primary concerns that a lot of my contemporaries have for their books that you know I've, I'm lucky enough to know a lot of them, and um, and I just love and respect them so much is that we want to speak directly to our youth. We want to speak directly to our Indigenous youth for a couple of reasons. Um, one of them is that, and this is from my own perspective, but one of them is that we want to be able to, for Indigenous children to read stories where they are heroes because it empowers them. It, it helps them to feel seen. And that is a very, is a vitally important thing to do in literature. We never had that when I was growing up. 
um, all the books that I read, it was all white heroes. And as an indigenous kid, it taught me nothing about myself. And to see myself as a caricature in a lot of these books, it developed a really negative sense of self. And I don't want that to ever happen in literature anymore. And so, yeah, so my work as much as it, and I moved away from trauma-based stories in, in, a, lot of, in a lot of my work uh, into stories of resiliency, resurgence, empowerment, um, because I think it's important for kids to see that we are more than trauma, uh, as much as we have to understand the role that trauma has played in our lives. So I want that. I want kids to see um, themselves reflected in literature. But I also want us, them to see successful writers and successful artists. And, uh, you know, it's not lost on me that I've done pretty well with my writing. Um, you know, Cherie has done very well with her writing. Eden Robinson has done really well with her writing. And I could go on and on and on, like Alicia Elliott and Richard Van Camp and all these amazing people. And, it, and aside from the books that we're creating, what kids see is that, you know, we're doing well. We're, we're successful. And when they see us speaking, you know, on a podcast or in a school or on TV or whatever it might be, they see that and they think, I can do that too. And then if they think and they are empowered by the fact that they can tell their stories and have people listen to them, then what we're doing is we're opening doors for more and more kids to grow up and become writers like us, to become artists like us. And, and that's that's the kind of momentum that I want to see in our country. Um, and I'll get, tell you a quick story. So I was at a, a community in Manitoba here called Pegwas First Nation. And I was giving a talk at an assembly at, at, at the, the school in Pegwas. And, um, and once the talk was over, these kids were all filing out of the, out of the gym. And some of them loved it. Some of them, you know, were, were typical teenagers that just like, you know, um, that, that was boring, whatever. But like, there was one kid who came up to me after and he said, Mr. Robertson. And I said, yeah. I said, how's it going? And he goes, I want to be a writer just like you. And that is what I do this for frankly, that is exactly what I do this for because that kid, hopefully now, will grow up to start telling stories. And we need more of our kids to grow up telling stories because that is how we will create change over the long term. So, you know, clearly now we have so many amazing examples of, of hugely talented, hugely successful uh, Indigenous artists. Um, what was it like for you? Who, who blazed the trail for you? How did you navigate that sense of, of discovering you were a writer when there were far fewer um, examples of successful uh, uh, Indigenous voices? Yeah, so, you know, like I said, when I was growing up in the 80s, uh, that was really my formative years were in the 80s and early 90s. Um, there wasn't a lot, you know. Um, I, you know so, I, so mine are easy to pick from. Like there was Lee Miracle um, was someone who was, who was around. Um, Beatrice Culleton, uh, who is now Beatrice Mazonier, who wrote this In Search of April Raintree, was around. Um, Thomas King was obviously around. So, like, so, so those writers were were people that really helped me to see that telling stories for a life, for a career, was something that was possible. That was something that I could do. And so, I've worked very hard over the last. 20, 30 years to, you know, to get where I am today. But what I think what we've seen is that um, back then in the 80s and 90s, you may have had three, four, five, you know, Richard Wagamese and like all these writers who were doing well. 
And what they have done is they've opened doors for people like, you know, me, Wabgisha Grice, Richard Van Camp, Sheree Demoline, Alicia Elliott, like Eden Rock, all, all of us to start telling our stories. And hopefully what we're doing is opening doors for more and more kids to tell their stories. And so, you know, in the next 10, 20, 30 years, you're going to have even more indigenous writers. And I would say, um, you know, marginalized writers in general. So black writers, writers from the LGBTQI, you know, community um, who are empowered and given platforms to share their truths through storytelling. And I think that's, really the most important movement that's happening right now in can lit is that um you're seeing more and more writers from marginalized communities um writing their stories but more than not having their stories read by the general public and and most importantly by kids from those marginalized communities because then they're going to grow up telling their stories and so so those were the writers that really influenced me when i was a kid but hopefully, like if there's like five kids in Canada who think, you know, Dave Robertson is my favorite writer, I want to write books like Dave Robertson, then like, I think that's like an amazing thing to, and an, an amazing responsibility um, that I have, that Sheree has, that, you know, all my friends in this community have um, to influence and impact kids to open doors for them. I want to thank you for taking time to speak with us about the Barren Grounds. That was my conversation with David A. Robertson on his beautiful new middle grade epic, The Barren Grounds. Special thanks to the Ottawa Public Library and Library and Archives Canada for their collaboration in our virtual season. It's all available online at writersfestival.org and all you need to do to connect with some of the world's most acclaimed authors is click play. Please consider making a donation to support our virtual programming as it may be a long while before we are able to gather again in person. Next we'll hear from two of Ottawa's most accomplished speculative fiction authors. Our host, Kate Hartfield, is an author of fantasy, science fiction, horror, as well as a nonfiction writer and editor. She won the Aurora Award for Best Novel for Armed in Her Fashion, and I'm a huge fan of her Alice Payne time travel novellas. She's also created two interactive novels, The Road to Canterbury and The Magician's Workshop. Kate spoke with her good friend, Derek Kunskin, Derek's first two novels, The Quantum Magician and The Quantum Garden, introduced us to Belisarius and the Homo Quantus, a race genetically engineered with impossible insight. But his gift is also a curse, an uncontrollable, even suicidal drive to know, to understand. Genetically flawed, he leaves his people to find a different life and ends up becoming the galaxy's greatest con man and thief. Derek's latest, The House of Sticks, is the start of a groundbreaking new series and is set 250 years before The Quantum Magician in the same beautifully rendered universe. Here's their conversation. So I am Kate Hartfield. Uh, I am an Ottawa writer of science fiction and fantasy. Uh, and I am here today with my friend Derek Kunskin. And uh, I'm happy to be here talking with my friend Kate. Yay! Uh, yeah, and thanks very much uh, to the Ottawa Writers Festival for um, for hosting these during this difficult time and uh, for inviting us to do this. This is going to be lots of fun. So to start off with, uh, Derek is going to read a little bit from his most recent novel. Uh, so I'm uh, my my most recent novel is called The House of Sticks, and it's basically a sort of Godfather story set in the clouds of Venus, but starring Quebec separatists about 250 years in the future. And so I'm starting here from uh, chapter seven. So Emile pulled Thérèse close, 
playfully pulled on the joint from her lips, took a drag, and then replaced it. They lay naked under a blanket in one of the cargo bays. Music played, too low for the kind of angry yelling in the song. It was a hard-bitten album of rock rage, heavy percussions, but playing quietly, making of the music an echo of anger. Other couples who had communed with Venus snuggled here too, under their own blankets, or stretched out on boxes, speaking in hushed voices, all mellow. No one had refused to remove their helmet. Every one of them had looked upon Venus with naked eyes, breathing her breath as they would on earth. It was empowering, overwhelming, and humbling. Emil didn't know what to do with the feelings he couldn't name. He was high and drunk and sore like he'd been punched over and over, and he'd gotten off easier than Therese. The low pressure had given her two black eyes and the white of one of them had filled with blood. His joints ached, his bones ached, but he felt like he'd done something enormous. Across the storeroom, somebody gasped in pain and stamped their foot over and over, swearing. Mmm, Therese said. Hélène is aciding. Emil didn't try to see. He'd heard of aciding. Hélène and her friends used acid-resistant stencils to paint new artful scars onto their bodies. They baptized themselves with sulfuric acid, consenting to be marked by their new home and making of the baptism works of art. Emil had seen dozens of such marks, but the idea of intentionally burning his skin with acid was still alien to him. He had too much of the coureur des vins in him. He'd been painfully touched by Venus many times. Before now, he'd never understood their meaning. A naked, brown-haired man about his age came across the room. You guys want to acid too, he asked, crouching. I'll stop there. Excellent, thank you. Do you want to talk a little bit about how your books fit together in terms of world building and the universe that you've created? Uh, so, uh, Maybe 2013 or 2014, I started reading some collections by Stephen Baxter and Alistair Reynolds. And um, both of them had many stories that were set in the same universe. And until that point, I had been creating an entire new universe for every story I wrote, which is exhausting. And so when I started thinking of, you know, how could I put some of these stories together, um, I got a bunch of ideas and so so I decided to put as many things as I could in the same universe because everything, every idea I had was then a writing prompt for something else. And so I have the Quantum Evolution series which is set about 500 years in the future when a sort of interstellar civilization is happening. Um, this story, The House of Sticks, is set in the same universe but 250 years earlier before they find the sort of ways to, you know, cross the stars. And so this is, you know, a solar system sort of science fiction and, and uh, more to the point, it all happens just on Venus. So, or in the clouds, basically. Right. Which became awfully timely when uh, the scientific news came out this summer about Venus. So. It was. <laughs> yeah. Yay, phosphine. <laughs> Yay. Um, so do you find that daunting to to do world building that takes place over several centuries like that how do you approach that um i uh it's kind of like an, a process of accretion because um I'll, I'll listen to a lot of um podcasts and nonfiction and lectures and i it can be stuff as varied as you know early christian religion or it can be you know history of of china or something like that and 
all of those things, I just imagine how could what I'm listening to impact what I'm writing and what sort of cultural or emotional or artistic details could I add into the story? And so sometimes it's it, stuff comes to me by nonfiction and, and yeah, it's a, it's a process of accretion because once you've got something built, there's always the temptation. Once you've built this little village, you want to, you know, drive a road out of it and see what's past the road and what's through the forest. So, but what about you? Uh, yeah, because I'm not usually inventing far future uh, societies, although I have done a little bit of that in short fiction. I'm usually uh, either talking about now or the or the near future, and or most often I write in the past. Often, I think it's a pretty similar process because I do have to think about the entire society and about those same questions of how do belief systems interact and uh, who are the kinds of people who are coming in and out of the society. And uh, really it is, you know, the, the past is, is a different country in so many ways. So I think the process of creating a future and creating the past are more similar than we might imagine in a lot of ways. Um, right now, I'm working on something set quite a long time ago near the end of the, the Roman Empire. And so many parts of that world are so alien that uh, it does often feel like I'm writing science fiction in a way. But I think too that that it's almost like you and I writing in the the 2010s and 2020s now. Um, it's it's almost like we have a bit more canvas than than you know when I was reading science fiction in let's say the 1990s or fantasy in the 1990s. When I look back at it now, it feels like the scope of characters and the kind of conflicts and the kind of experience seems so narrow, right? I mean. Um, you know, would I ever see a gay character in, you know, my epic fantasy of the 1990s or, you know, uh, even characters of color or even uh, like non-Western, you know, sensibilities. Um, I, it's, and, and this is something I've admired in your writing a lot where like you, you're definitely digging into all sorts of, of, of uh, characters that are wholly original to my mind. Yes, thank you. Yeah, yeah, definitely. That's one of the things I'm trying to do a lot is to look at the kinds of stories that haven't been told uh, as much as I think they could be or or just tell them from my perspective. Uh, so, yeah, I think that that sort of power of imagination and empathy comes into it a lot of trying to think, OK, well, what would it be like uh, to be in this situation? Uh, so, yeah, so I think we're kind of exploring similar things in those ways. And yeah, I mean, we're definitely living in, uh, I think, this amazing golden age for science fiction and fantasy, where the, the books that are coming out, um, you know, there are so many voices that are, are just amazing and telling incredible stories and stories that haven't been told enough. And uh, I think we're very lucky to be living now in that way. In other ways, not so much. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> in, in that particular way, we're lucky. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, speaking of which, um, I, don't want to, I don't want to talk about the pandemic too much, but uh, one thing that I found interesting so far is that uh, even though I don't write many stories set now, uh, I have found that it's creeping into my world building a little bit. Um, so uh, the book that I have coming out next uh, is set in the 18th century, and so there's a lot of talk about smallpox in the book. It's about Marie Antoinette and her sister and the, the entire reason that Marie Antoinette became, uh, became the Queen of France is because her, an older sister of hers died of smallpox and, um, and the entire plan for which sister went to which country uh, 
changed. And that's why she ended up going to France. And so there's, there's obviously there's talk of, uh, of illness and of epidemics. Uh, and so, you know, when I was revising those bits in the story, because uh, I'm in the process now of doing edits with my editor, I definitely found myself filling in a little bit more of, of the emotion of, of what was happening then, you know, because I was like, oh, no, this, that's not how it feels. This is how it feels. Now I understand. <laughs> you know, I mean, not that I understand what it's like to have, uh, you know, smallpox ravaged by palace, uh, but I, I have, you know, a new feeling about that, a new personal connection to living in a pandemic and all sorts of other things. So, you know, I was writing about a dragon and the the idea of hoarding, right? The idea of of loneliness mm. and hoarding and community and that all these things were coming in, you know, and affecting what I was writing, even though you would think that a dragon story was completely separate from writing about 2020 life. So are, are you finding any of it coming into your world building that you've noticed? For me, science fiction is a, a, an escape. I've I've uh, always wanted to go someplace else to sort of you know go to someplace more interesting, um, someplace where where basically the magic comes true and to get away from you know mortgages and speed limits and you know in this case pandemics and so um, I I but one thing I think the, the pandemic a little more facetiously has taught me is I mean when you take a when you pair sort of the mask deniers um, and, you know, some of the, the right-wing politics of the United States and, and elsewhere, I think, you know, we've, we, there's all sorts of lazy villainy that we can't use anymore in our writing because yeah. people will go, that's just like, it's not practical. It doesn't make sense because, you know, the people are seeing all the sort of inept, uh, you know, maliciousness that's, that's already around. And so not that I was trying to use lazy villainy, but I just feel that like, it was taken away from me before I could really take my shot with it. So. Yeah, it's really, yeah. it's really weird writing in this time for that reason as well. Yeah. I found that uh, trying to write a bad guy who's really super smart feels like kind of some sort of escape <laughs> now. Like, like it just feels, it feels <laughs> like, like a fairy story in a way to have this. It's, it's inauthentic. Villain. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Yeah, uh, so yeah, I, I think that the sort of numbing banality of evil in our daily life now, um, yeah. I, I, I feel like for me to understand the world, I have to start delving into the mechanics of cultism or something. So you and I, we we had our first novels come out at the same time, and I think we both had some success. And I remember the spring after both our novels were out, you and I were just kind of talking about feelings at one point. And we both realized that there was like this kind of undercurrent of being bummed out about something and we didn't know what it was. And we were, I remember my feeling of, is this all there is, right? And mm -hmm. I, I don't know, I felt like some of the excitement of that initial like dream come true had gone away for a bit because the dream had come true. And, and so... I don't know. I think since then I've been kind of climbing back onto inspiration again. And I mean, I've been writing some things I love, um, but uh, no, it's, it's been a weird experience to try and see how I um, replenish the well, because I, I'm not even sure if it's a lack of ideas or if it's a lack of 
I, I don't know. I'm so, and I don't even know if that's to do with the pandemic or where I am in my writing career or just, you know, after the blizzard of promotion that every author has to do, if you're just exhausted when trying to juggle job and family and everything else. So I, I haven't found that I'm less inspired or less interested in, in ideas. I mean, there, there's still so much happening. Um, you know, there, there's, I think we're living in a fantastic time for television, strangely enough, um, you know, mm-hmm. there's so much great stuff on streaming. Uh, so that I've been drawing a lot of inspiration from just fantastic TV shows, you know, everything from, from Watchmen to, to The Witcher. Um, you know, there's been so much good stuff. So, yeah, so I feel like I'm, I'm still churning away on things. But it is really, it, it's difficult when we sort of got to that point as writers where we were published, uh, you know, after both of us tried for a very long time to get there. So, you know, <laughs> we kind of got there, you know, got our books out. And then, you know, now there's this sort of, uh uncertainty about what the next several years are going to look like uh just on the industry level of you know um Mm -hmm. just having books come out and having them be in bookstores and having book launches and all the stuff that we thought okay this is what we're going to do now as authors and it's all uh thrown into chaos and i think that part of it's been a little bit difficult uh you know when i sit down to write i i sometimes feel like well you know, it's it's hard to write. It's hard at the best of times to write a book knowing it's going to be three years before anyone gets to read it. But now, when three years feels like something I can't even imagine, you know, it's it's hard to just imagine this yeah. book getting into readers' hands. For sure. Well, and 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 that's what happened with the House of Sticks. It was supposed to come out in August, and you know, there were various delays in the entire industry. Like my publisher had wanted to keep it coming out in August and they thought they could do it. But then finally the printers and the distributors also were affected by the the pandemic. And so they released mine in audio and ebook. Um, And, you know, it won't be until April now that the hardcover comes out. So it's like, everything's a little jumbled and disjointed and yeah, but, but one of the, one of the sort of things I'm taking to heart, in a, in a, in a good way is that, um, I'm like a lot of the sales, like sales on eBooks and audio seem to be doing okay. Yeah, absolutely. And I think there's, there's some signs that people are still reading as much, uh, as they do, as they were. And, um, yeah, there's, I think there's some healthy signs, uh, and, and maybe mm-hmm. we'll come out of this with, with a reinvigorated, um, economy for indie bookstores and you know maybe we'll come out of this better in a lot of ways it's really hard to say at this point um but yeah in my better moments i definitely feel hopeful that you know i mean the core of what we do it really brings us back to that right you know we've we've both had to really learn that you know the only thing you can come back to is your own brain and the keyboard and uh the ideas that you have and just and the art and um you know it's the only thing that you can really control to any degree so um, I think I've taken some refuge in that right now is just say, you know what? Yeah. I can't, I can't control any of the rest of it. I can't control what happens <laughs> in the States or anywhere else, but uh, you know, at least I can write my story and uh, um, yeah, that's helpful. And I think, yeah, I think what, what carries me forward a bit more now than maybe like, let's say 10 years ago when I was still struggling to try and even find an agent for a novel is that I have a, a faith now that in myself that, if I write something, it'll sell somewhere, right? Mm-hmm. Whereas 10 years ago, you know, when you and I had met, it, you know, I, I couldn't say that about my stuff. 
and one of the things I think that, um, you know, has really helped us both as writers is, is the Ottawa community, right. That we, that we have. Mm -hmm. And I think in a lot of ways in, in both of having people to learn from and also, you know, just having people to, to inspire you to get your butt in the chair and, and write every day and, and that kind of thing. Um, but I've also really been thinking lately a lot about, about community and just, you know, bringing it back to the idea of world building and uh, how we, how we create communities in stories and how we think about how they fit together and the kinds of possible ways that humans can, can have societies uh, and uh, what community means when it's threatened, like now, when, you know, how do you have community when we can't see each other? So it, mm. it's almost a very, it's a very science fictional exercise that we're going through at the moment. <laughs> if you look at a, a lot of sort of dystopian stories, what happens is society breaks down very, very quickly. And I think in this pandemic, you know, um, I saw so many people making bread on social media, you know, that was like the new thing. And then they, they made so much bread, they have to give some to the neighbors who they never met before. Right. And it's like, right. there's, there's these moments of social cohesion that come because of, you know, random acts and deliberate acts of kindness. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wonder, you know, we, so much of, you know, like you, you point out there's great, great stuff on TV, but TV is is often running on a really, really fast pace that that you know only has the canvas for the conflict of you know physical, emotional, political, economic conflict. It, it's almost like the pandemic is showing us two acts of kindness where people will reach out to me and go, Derek, how you doing? You know, keep on going, write some more. I feel good when I reach out to somebody and say, Wow, you did a good job because somebody had, you know, they sold a story or they got an agent or they, you know. They submitted a story or got a rejection. You know, I mean, all of those things are 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 wonderful to do for a writer, and you know, it it re-energizes me and makes me feel a little better about the world and myself when I can reach out and say, you know. And so I haven't thought about kindness in terms of world building, but it, once again, the Kate Hartfield House of Inspiration is is, <laughs> is at work. I am happy to provide. <laughs> Well, what do you think? It's really fascinating the way we make assumptions as writers of speculative fiction about what will happen to society under stress, right? And um, and sometimes, uh, you know, sometimes those things turn out to be inaccurate. I think Charlie Jane Anders has talked a lot about this, about the that if you look at the at the evidence of what societies actually do when they're in a disaster and in a in a situation where they have to pull together, uh, you know, more often than not, people will actually help each other and will actually uh, try to do the right thing. Um, and I think ob- obviously that can be interfered with by bad actors trying to, um, mm-hmm. you know, sp- spread conspiracy theories and, and all the rest of it. But um, yeah, I think we have, we have seen some things that I think might make science fictional world building a little bit more optimistic, maybe. <laughs> and I don't know, it's hard to say our bread and butter is conflict. So the, the thing yeah. is too, when there's a certain amount of, of things that function because people make it function, it reduces conflict too. So, I mean, you know, our agents and editors are not necessarily going to be happy with us if we, <laughs> kind of, you know, swing too yeah. far in that direction. You know, making it interesting and making it nuanced, I think, and, you know, cause all societies are complicated and um, mm-hmm. patterns are interesting and, 
Um, and that's one of the things I really admire about your work too, is that it's all, it's all really thoughtful and it's, it's, it's very, um, you know, the societal arrangements are, are, it's not like there's good guys and bad guys in, in many ways, you know, it's almost like a galaxy of uh, societies and communities and groups and, uh, and they all work together really nicely in, in interesting ways. So I think that's, that's great. Oh, it's really nuanced. You. It's not the only thing I like about you writing. <laughs> it's one of them. <laughs> the Kate um, Hartfield House of Flattery. <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. Pancakes, flattery, <laughs> inspiration. <laughs> I just made some rye bread. So, you know, I would give that to you if you were in person. But <laughs> yeah, that'd be awesome. Like speaking of community, what kinds of things are happening in Ottawa? Because I know one of the things that you do is you're co-chair of CanCon. So you're really involved in uh, in community here in Ottawa, especially in the speculative fiction community. Um, so do you want to talk a little bit about how uh, how things are evolving in that realm at the moment and, and where we go from here? I think Ottawa has a strong population of sci-fi and fantasy and horror readers and writers, um, both writers who have sold stuff and writers who are aspiring to sell things. Um, and, you know, there's there's our nerd folk who are, you know, the building the, the, the costumey things and painting stuff. And it, it's, it's wonderful because it, we all get energized uh, from each other when we meet. And so um, CanCon does does happen once a year, uh, just a little before Writers Fest, actually. Like part of it is just to bring the community together and build it and to make it supportive of people. Um, but the other part is is very deliberately trying to give a leg up and a boost to writers at any career level. One of the reasons that I focused on that when, when I started working with CanCon is because uh, for so much of my writing development it was a solitary exercise without any other writers around uh, and even if there were writers sometimes they were you know in literature or in other genres and and not that there's anything wrong with that it's just that for what I, the particular help i need has to be from somebody sort of in my field mm -hmm. and so um when when i i settled in ottawa sort of for good i decided that if i'm going to stay here for the rest of my life i'd better make it a sort of city where I want to live sort of, uh, you know, culturally, literarily, um, science fictionally, nerdily. Um, and, and so that's, that's been it. And, and so this year, um, we're starting to do a few online events. I think I've been to a few conferences that have just gone entirely online. And I think it's exhausting at times to consider, you know, you're there, you know, you meet with your parents by video chat, you may work mm -hmm. by video chat, and then all of a sudden you have to sit for an entire weekend in a panel setting, you know, in front of Zoom or whatever other software. And so I, I think that we found that we might not all have the bandwidth, uh, no pun intended for that. Mm -hmm. So we're doing uh, little sessions of two or three hours, one hour here, there, and you're right that nothing sort of um, replaces the, you know, the three or four people like, oh, I haven't seen you in a year, let's chat. And then somebody else wanders up and you haven't seen them in six months and somebody else wanders up and it's just very organic. Mm -hmm. Whereas I think the, all of the connections we make here are almost all intentional and deliberate. And I think that changes a bit. There's no more running into somebody uh, in that sense. And so I think that changes a bit the character and the feel of our interactions. Yeah, definitely. It's a fun line between exhausting and, and inspirational, I think, with all of these online events, for sure. Uh, 
uh, we should mention ephemera reading series too in yes. Toronto, which is doing really nice um, for speculative fiction um, work. It's just the word ephemera, and uh, you can watch them on YouTube or Facebook. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a lot of they're great inventions. Yeah, yeah, they've been really good. Um, so yeah, there's there's still stuff happening, which is really useful and will keep us going. And and if you if you happen to be somebody who doesn't live with a community nearby of, of mm-hmm. speculative fiction writers. All of a sudden, you can attend almost for free in many cases a con- conference that's going on in Britain at the same time as you know, uh, mm-hmm. or you know, in Boston or in Los Angeles. And I mean, uh, all of a sudden, the cost, the barrier to entry in terms of economics is drastically, drastically lowered. Yeah, it's a lot more accessible. And I think for writers too, one of the pluses is that we've been able to gradually get our conventions to be a little bit more global or at least some of the conventions mm-hmm. right like uh, FutureCon happened in, in this fall which was deliberately global and uh i'm attending FiaCon this weekend and there's oh, programming cool. happening like in all time zones uh, and flights of foundry was the same way it was all time zones and so there are people in different countries of the world at the same convention and i mean not only is that the way it ought to be you know as a community of of artists gathering but you know selfishly speaking as world builders too it's it's so much easier to kind of drop our parochial mindsets um you know Mm -hmm. when you have people confronting you and saying you know actually your idea of what a society looks like um is rooted in your own upbringing and and these are the the things that you haven't examined yet and you know so i think that can only be good for us as writers too so that's another plus I'm looking on the bread side tonight. I don't know. <laughs> it must be the bread that I baked. Yeah, no, this has been wonderful. And uh, I really, really appreciated talking with you again. That was Kate Hartfield speaking with Derek Kunskin about his latest novel, The House of Sticks. Please take a moment to rate and review the podcast and don't hesitate to recommend it to a friend. If you enjoy the podcast or any of our virtual programming, please consider making a charitable donation. Your financial support will allow us to continue to bring you the world's most interesting authors and thinkers. Special thanks to David A. Robertson, Kate Hartfield, and Derek Kunskin for participating in the podcast. The next installment of Writers' Festival Radio is also out today. Imagining Worlds Part 2 features England's Mike Carey and South Africa's Lauren Pucas. This podcast is produced by Aaron Flynn, original music and sound engineering by Mike Dubé. Kira Harris is our program director. And I'm your host, Sean Wilson. Thank you for listening.